0: Now, as Grace uh, just mentioned, we are in, actually in the last couple of weeks of this series called Extreme Heroes. And if you haven't been with us for a while, uh, we've been looking at some different characters throughout the Old Testament uh, that God used in some pretty extraordinary ways. Uh, but it's with this idea that God wants to use each and every one of us as well. Uh, and how can, we, how can we learn from these different characters? Now, no matter who you are, what your background is... Uh, but we all kind of want to make a difference in the world around us. We don't really just want to tread water. We want to make a difference in life. And if you believe in Jesus this morning, uh, we, we want to have this sense that the world's a little bit more like God wants it to be because we lived here. Isn't that true? We want that. Now today, we're going to be looking at this life of Nehemiah. Uh, and he's a, he's a good uh, model for us to follow because God did uh, use him to make a difference. And again, I believe God wants to use each and every one of us to make a, make a difference. But here's the thing, how that looks from one person to the next could be drastically different. So as we get into this, let me give you a little bit of context uh, on where Nehemiah kind of fits in the scope of uh, the history of Israel. Uh, here's kind of a quick timeline, I and mean, we're, we're going to start with Moses, who Uh, As you know, we've been talking about uh, over the last couple weeks. And Moses, he leads Israel out of Egypt and into this promised land um, that God promised them, this holy land, sometime around 1300 B.C., And after that, the Israelites kind of occupied this this land, and there came the time of kings. They were begging for these kings, and it started with Saul. Uh, Some of you might be familiar with Saul, and then went to David, and Israel kind of reached its peak. And then after that was Solomon. And from Solomon's time on, there was kind of a steady decline. It kind of went downhill from there. And eventually, Israel is pretty much finished off as a nation. Uh, when the Babylonians come in, and around 587 BC, um, Jerusalem is basically wiped out. And uh, they're scattered in exile across the Babylonian Empire. And uh, eventually, Babylon is taken over by Persia. And that's good news for um, the Israelites because many of them were able to go back to the promised land but um, that's kind of the setting for where we're at. They're they're going back to their their promised land and things aren't as great as they uh, once were. Let's put it that way. Now, Nehemiah, he lived in Persia in the the capital city of of Susa, and he's serving in the Persian government as the cupbearer to the king. And it's his job to taste the wine before it's given to the king. Now, this isn't so, like, to make sure it's a good vintage or anything like that, right? It's to make sure the wine hasn't been poisoned. And so you never have to ask the cupbearer, like, hey, how'd your day go today? Right? If, if he's still alive, things are going pretty good for him. But that begs the question, like, why, why would anybody apply for that job? why would anybody want that job? And and here's the thing, a cupbearer was more than just a butler type uh, person to the king. He was someone that that the king trusted, right? He had incredible access to the king, someone who has a lot of access. There's at least one instance in ancient history that we see that the cupbearer was the number two position in the entire empire. And so this this cupbearer had a lot of influence. And so is doing pretty well for himself. He's, he, he's on this successful career path, and his life was going pretty, pretty well until Nehemiah 1-1. And this is what it says there. The words of Nehemiah, Nehemiah son of Hecalia, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so Nehemiah learns that Jerusalem is in pretty terrible shape. Enemies are surrounding them and the walls are in ruins and morale is just kind of in the pits. The part that really concerns Nehemiah in this, in this passage is that this, God's dream of redeeming the world, God's plan of, of telling the world that there is a one true holy God and that he loves you and that he wants to redeem and save the world from their sins, that, that plan seems to be at risk here. Right? That whole idea only lives in Israel. No other place has this plan. Israel is kind of the, the caretakers or the stewards of this plan, and that all seems to be at risk. And Nehemiah says in verse 4: when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Now, what I want to do in walking through this story of Nehemiah is I want to explore some of those things that characterize the life of a difference maker. And the first one is right here: this idea of holy discontent. This is a very deep personal response to some area of brokenness in the world. And Pastor Bill Hybels kind of coined this phrase a while back uh, in a book called Holy Discontent. And it's really this moment where our passion and our purpose intersect. It's a motivation toward action that's tempered by the Holy Spirit. Now, Heibel's challenges his readers to really consider, what is that for you? What is that area and point of holy discontent? And he gives some examples, and pretty noble examples, um, that might just be too big to think about, like um, Mother Teresa or Martin Luther King Jr., who devoted their entire lives uh, for justice and dignity for others. But Then he highlights some of those that may not, that we may not look to quite as, as quickly, like, Children's ministry volunteers. Like, what is their holy discontent? Is that interesting? What is it? And I, I started thinking about this, and maybe, maybe it's they want the kids here to experience church differently than they did growing up. Maybe they didn't have a great experience in church. Or maybe, maybe their brokenness is around abuse and neglect. and they know that their one hour of service on Sunday morning can make an incredible difference. In the life of a child. Maybe it's youth ministry. Maybe it's somewhere else. But what is that holy discontent? And once we start figuring that out. We can start fighting for it. And we can make a difference in that area. Now you know. In generally in the heart of a leader. Before any any of that direction. Before the, the path that we should be going down. Before all those things that need to happen. There's this intense. Passionate frustration. Over some area where God's will is not being done on earth, right? And I, I think of uh, William Wilberforce. He was the guy that kind of led the charge and movement against slavery in England uh, so many years ago. Or, or Millard Fuller, the founder of Habitat for Humanity, whose brokenness was around uh, children who didn't have roofs over their heads, right? Or, or Bill Wilson, who helped found Alcoholics Anonymous because he saw the damage and the pain that alcoholism caused in his own life and then in the lives of so many other people. But these men, before they had a vision of what needed to happen, they had a burning sense of outrage over an area of life where God's will wasn't being done. Now, this may seem counterintuitive, Right? But instead of trying to distract themselves or ease kind of their, their sense of discomfort, these, these guys, these individuals would deliberately put themselves in those situations that, that could fuel that fire that was burning in them. So slavery, homeless people, um, people whose lives have been damaged and destroyed by alcoholism. Like they'd put themselves brighter and brighter and hotter. They would watch it, they'd live it, they'd study it. And that fire would start burning and brighter and brighter and hotter and hotter. That's where difference-making often begins. That's a deep sense of holy discontent, and that's where, that's where Nehemiah is right now. Have you ever been struck by that? Now, some, some area of life that just bothers you? Now, some of you are bothered by everything, and that's not what I'm talking about. If you're bothered by everything, you're just cranky, right? <laughs> but is there some area that gets you kind of by the throat? Oh, it just bothers you. Is there there's some sense of gnawing, holy discontent? If there is, consider that God might be calling you right into that area to make a difference. Okay. That's what happened here for Nehemiah. And that brings us to the second characteristic of a difference maker. Someone, someone that has a sense of fervent prayer in them. He says in verse 4, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And if you read through the the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that that, most of that first chapter is this beautiful prayer where Nehemiah is just pouring out his heart to God. And he does this mourning and fasting and, and praying, and not just for hours or days or even weeks, but for months. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, something that's not super clear right off the bat uh, is that the month of Nisan is four months after the month of Kislev, which is uh, the first month mentioned in the book. And so Nehemiah spent four months praying before he did anything else. Four months. and I think this is, this is why this is such a powerful detail because I think most people can be kind of divided into activists and contemplatives, right? Activists and contemplatives. And the activists, they like want to do something. They have their task list and you better believe that thing is getting done today, right? And many of you identify with that, but they, they get the things done, but it's very hard for them sometimes to stop and pray. That can be a difficult thing. But on the other hand, contemplatives, they, they, they feel uh, very comfortable in prayer. They're patient. They're reflective. They, they, they're very natural in that. But getting them off the starting block can be difficult. And so when a, an activist says, hey, I'm going to call you, that means like by the end of the day, before you get home, I'm going to call you. If a contemplative says, hey, I'll give you a call, that's like sometime between now and when I die, I may call you. And some of you are like that too. Well, there's an indicator in this book of what Nehemiah's natural tendency is. And it's in Nehemiah 13.25, because Nehemiah, he hears about some people getting married to people outside of the faith and becoming idolaters. And before I read this passage, I am in no way saying this is what we should be doing. This is just Nehemiah's reaction to it, okay? He says this, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. Yikes. So, Nehemiah, activist or contemplative? Hmm. This guy is a racehorse. He's an activist, but he stops when he gets the news about Jerusalem. And for four months, he does nothing but pour out his heart to God every single day. For four months, this guy that is, has this fire just burning in him, he stops. And praise. And I think most of us can take a hint, can take a lesson just from that one thing this morning. But real difference makers, real difference making always starts with God. It always starts with God. And so Nehemiah, this activist, this, this hair puller, spends four months praying before he does anything. And he's he's asking God to give him, give him an opportunity to, to discuss these things with the king that he's built all this influence with. And one of the reasons Jerusalem is in ruins is because this same king put out a decree, an edict that all building in Jerusalem needed to stop. It needed to halt because King Artaxerxes, he was afraid that all these Jews going back to Jerusalem, that there would be some opposition rising against him. And so he put a halt to all of it. And so the, the wall stayed in shambles. And so Nehemiah really has to convince the king to change his foreign policy around Jerusalem. And so he pleads this case with the king and really with great skill. He says in Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 1, he says, In the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, well, what is it you want? Then I prayed to God, the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you be back? He's already pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Now, Nehemiah, he's already built trust with the king. So Artaxerxes, he says, sure, go ahead. And Nehemiah feels like, hey, the king's in a good mood today. I'm kind of on a roll. Uh, He goes on. In verse 7, he says, I also said to him, well, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have uh, a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I'll occupy. And so Nehemiah here, he's really asking for letters of reference to give him authority with the people he's going to be interacting with. He's saying, you know, hey, I need some authorization. Can Can you write those for me? And along the way, we're going to have to stop at Home Depot and pick up a few things. Uh, can you foot the bill for that? And we're going to need some timber. So can you can you allow some of your royal lumber to be chopped down and, and used to build, rebuild this wall? All right, Nehemiah is really asking a pretty big ask. And he's demonstrating uh, some amazing boldness and resourcefulness. And we know this. One person that is fully devoted to a cause is hard to resist. And so the uh, king Artaxerxes, he's like, okay, I'll do what you ask. I'll do all that you ask. But notice Nehemiah's response to the king. He says, because of the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my requests. You See, it wasn't about Nehemiah. This, is, this was about God and uh, what, what God's doing. He, he has this kind of special kind of humility about him at this point. He's not mentioning how, how bold he was or slick his words were or how eloquent he spoke or even the time that it took to invest in, in this relationship with the king. He said, because of the graciousness of God, the king granted my request. And so Nehemiah eventually arrives in Jerusalem ready to rebuild the wall. But before he does anything else, he sneaks off secretly and he goes and looks at the walls of Jerusalem to see how bad things really are, to see firsthand what's really going on because I think smart leaders don't always rely on secondhand information. They wanted, He wanted firsthand information because I think secondhand information can come through a filter. Right? What, what does he want to hear? Maybe I'll tell him, maybe I'll skew it a little bit. And so he wants to get firsthand where are we really at, but I think, I think there's something else going on here. I think Nehemiah wanted to expose himself to the, the fullness of What's happening in Jerusalem so that really his commitment to what God's calling him to could sink even deeper into his core. Right? He wanted to see the brokenness firsthand of Jerusalem. And again, I'll say this again: if you if you are a follower of Christ this morning, there there will be an area where God uh, gives you a sense of holy discontent. Maybe, maybe it's around poverty, maybe it's around education. Maybe it's around uh, children or youth or addictions or troubled marriages. But God's going to give you uh, a holy discontent around some area of life that he wants you to uh, make a difference in. And there's a, there's a tendency in all of us uh, to really respond to anything that's unpleasant or uncomfortable by distancing ourselves from it. Change the channel. Uh, medicate so you don't have to feel it. Escape from it. But a difference maker really does the opposite. They, they put themselves in that situation where, um, where it's going to get them fired up. And I don't know what area that is for you, but God is calling you to make a difference somewhere. Somewhere to use your time, talents, and, and treasures to make a difference. And so Nehemiah, he goes out and looks at the mess, and now he's ready. He's ready. He's fired up. He pulls leaders together and says uh, to them in Nehemiah uh, verse 2, verse 17, You see the trouble we're in? Do you see? And this this isn't news to everyone. Everyone knows what what state the walls are in, but they just, they've gotten used to it. Have you ever wondered why uh, companies in in retail, like they they hire secret shoppers to uh, evaluate their customer experience? It's because when we're in an environment uh, long enough, we start not to see things the same way. Fresh eyes see things much more clearly. And so Nehemiah is coming in. Do you see the trouble we're in? Do you see? Right? Nehemiah, he gathers these guys together. He says, this isn't acceptable. This is absolutely unacceptable. And he casts this vision uh, to these guys in verse 17 and 18. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. See, it, it only takes one person who has this fire and the courage enough to name it. And these guys are, are saying, okay, let's do it. Let's go. In verse 17 or verse 18, they say, it says, so they began this good work. Now that brings us to the third characteristic of a, of a difference maker. The first was holy discontent. Second, fervent prayer. And the third one is take action. Difference makers take action. See, most of us, whenever we hear that there's some trouble or brokenness in the world, we, we think, man, that's too bad. Somebody should really do something about that. Somebody should really feed those hungry kids. Somebody should really teach those children about God in church. Somebody do something. Really go to Piedras Negras and, and take care of the families there. Somebody ought to do something. But difference makers. Like Nehemiah, they, they actually do something. Nehemiah hears about the trouble, and even though he's living a long way away and living a pretty good life, doing really well for himself, he starts praying to God, and he takes a risk and talks to the king. He gets foreign policy changed. And he goes, and he gets, he gets uh, the bill written off from the king, and he gets the king to pay for it. And he goes, and, and he gets these leaders together, and he casts a bold vision. And miracle of miracles, eventually, there's a groundbreaking ceremony, and they begin the work. And it's all just a piece of cake from there, because that's how life works. Wrong. <laughs> See, in Nehemiah 2.19, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And see, when they say, what is this you're doing? They're not looking for information. Uh, well, let me tell you what I'm doing. You know. It's an accusation. It's an accusation that Nehemiah's claim to have permission to, to rebuild this wall is a lie. And seven times in the book of Nehemiah, we see this formula, this, that work advances, progress is being made, and then comes the phrase, when they heard, when they heard. Some member of opposition hears what Nehemiah is doing, and they start to stir up trouble. In every single advance, Nehemiah's mission uh, is met with opposition. Every single advance. Now, I don't know about you, but I think life shouldn't be that way. If I'm doing something good, if I'm working in God's purpose for my life, I think life should be a lot easier, right? But it doesn't seem to be that way all the time. Life can be a battle, even when we're doing good things. But still, there's something in me that thinks life should be easier. But every time Nehemiah starts to make progress, it's met by opposition. And that brings us to the fourth characteristic, and it's persistence. Persistence. They say leadership is really like 80% persistence. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put my hand on the plow. I'm going to move forward with God's help. And I don't have the luxury of looking back because we are just moving forward. It's persistence. See, some, some of you are seeking to make a change and make a difference for God. Maybe it's a habit in your own life. Maybe it's in the world around you. Maybe it's your marriage. But somewhere you've hit a wall, right? You've hit opposition. But our job is is to be faithful and persist, to wait on God's help to, to overcome that barrier, to overcome that opposition. And four times, uh, his opponents uh, write Nehemiah a letter. Right? They, say, they say, stop what you're doing. We want to have a meeting with you. I mean, want to stop progress? Have more meetings. Right? I want to talk to you. They're trying to distract him. And so he drafts kind of a form letter and he sends it four times. Uh, This is in Nehemiah 6.3. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? See, this is great. Nehemiah refuses to spend a disproportionate amount of time placating people that will never be placated, trying to please people that will never be pleased. He's doing what God wants him to do, And after a while, they realize they're not stopping this guy. They are not stopping Nehemiah. And so they turn their attention toward the people. In chapter 4, verse 1, when Sanballat heard that that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Israelites doing? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? This is like ancient trash talk. It's great. Tobiah the Ammonite was, on, was at his side and said, what are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Like, take that. So in the face of all this opposition and ridicule, the people start getting discouraged. In verse 10, it reads, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall.'" Right? There's opposition outside, and then inside, morale begins to suffer. It begins to sag. And that, the people are saying, we just can't do it. There's too much trouble. And this always happens, right? If you're trying to do and trying to allow God to help you make a difference and let you make a difference, you're going to be faced with opposition. Right? There will be voices. There's going to be voices that say, you know that difference you're trying to make? It's silly. It's irrelevant. It's never going to happen. Just let it go. Give it up. Right? There will always be voices pushing you away from what God wants you to do. And at some point in the story, this is incredible, there, there are rumors that the enemies, their enemies, the Israelites' enemies are going to come and attack them. People who lived close by heard this 10 times over, that wherever you turn, they'll attack. Wherever you turn, they'll attack. And so Nehemiah, he has to address these rumors on top of everything else and on top of trying to guide the Israelites toward what God wants for them. It's really an unbelievable story. And so they all persevere together through all of that and through all the opposition. And the day comes when they lay the last brick. Now, guess how long this project took? I mean, yeah, some of you know the story. Nehemiah 6.15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. 52. How many, how many construction projects do you know that are like ahead of time and under budget? Not many. And this was a government project. This is like proof right here that God's hand was on this thing. One more characteristic of a difference maker, and that's joy. It's joy. Right, if you read through the end of the book, uh, you'll, you'll see that there is tremendous, tremendous joy in God's people. In Nehemiah 8.3, all the people were so excited that Ezra the priest read from God's word. It says, he read it aloud from daybreak to noon. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. People, six hours of preaching. And they were eating it up. I mean, some of you are already sleeping. and It's okay. I'm not judging, but six hours. I love that. Don't you love that? All right. One last passage, Nehemiah 8.10. This is a great verse. Go, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. How awesome is that? All right. There's a time for weeping, but it's not right now. And before this story's over, there will be weeping and the people will confess their sins back to God. But, but Nehemiah says, now is the time to celebrate our God. Now is the time to celebrate together. So, so go do things that bring you joy. Right? Go, go and eat. Don't eat McDonald's. Go eat some steak. Right? Go eat something that brings you joy. Go and drink. Don't drink water. Go drink something that brings you joy. And give some to the people that don't have anything prepared because, because we're all in this community together. We're all in God's community together. So share that. It's not the sorrow of the Lord. It's not the judgment of the Lord. Those things are real and those things are important, but it's it's not where our strength comes from. It's the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so joy characterizes the life of a difference maker because he's doing life with God. So that kind of, as we close this thing, it's, it's really in our court now. It's in your court. How is God calling you to be a difference maker like Nehemiah? What is, what is that holy discontent? And those are big questions. And sometimes we have, to, we have to wrestle with that. Some of you, you're like, I know exactly what that, that is in my life. Some of you are going to have to think about that for a while. But in what area is, is, do you have like this burning desire to see God's will done on earth? And how are you going to use your time, your treasure, your talents to make a difference in that area, in our church, in your community? What is it? And how is it going to happen? Big questions. And I think just like Nehemiah, we have to take these things to God in prayer. So let's pray together. God, I'm, I'm amazed at what you are doing in this church I'm amazed at how you've brought people together and you've brought such gifted and passionate people together. And you've given us incredible opportunities to make a difference in our church right here and in Georgetown. And we're seeing people come to faith because of what's happening here. But God, I pray for all of us that you would continue to, to show us what that holy discontent is in our lives, that you would, you would show us the wisdom of bringing all of these things before you in prayer because all difference-making starts with you. God, that for the contemplatives, uh, that we would have uh, just a, a passion to get off that starting block and to move forward with your Holy Spirit in the purpose that you've set before us. God, I, I pray That in the face of opposition, because it's going to happen, that you would help us to be persistent. And that in the midst of all of it, God, we can find our strength in your joy. Not in anything else. God, we want to be used by you. We want to make a difference for you. Because we love you. And life is better with you. God, we pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen.